Hello and welcome to NDA, the show where I guess I argue with creators about the creator economy. I'm Dave Wiskus. I'm joined today by my friend, Jacqueline Dallas. Jacqueline, how are you doing? I'm excited, although the argue with creators, dude, like now I'm nervous. What's the show going to yeah, be? Fight me, fight me, fight <laughs> me. I'm trying to establish this tempo really early on. It would be so easy to do a show where it's me bringing my friends on to agree with me. Yeah. And I'm choosing guests primarily based on difference in experience or difference in perspective. So like talking to um, Sam from Wendover, well, just like our relationship in life is we are constantly bickering. So okay. I don't know what, what order these are going to air in, but he was chosen as the first recording because I wanted to get that as the, the energy coming into this. That's so funny. I'll kind of pick topics to discuss based on what are me and this person not quite going to have the same perspective on. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'm excited. Can I give you like a very specific compliment before we dive in? I don't know if I want compliments. I'm going to give it to you anyways. All right. right. Okay. So for anyone that's listening, Dave is like the best. (laughs) He's like the guy that after I have a very long week, if he texts me for plans, I am like stoked because the conversations are always like so meaningful and fun. So like the fact that I get to record a podcast with you, I'm like, genuinely, it's like, I've been looking forward to it all week. Yeah, I'm pretty great. You are pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm in a very lucky position. I'm in a very fortunate position where I get to have conversations with so many people in this business with so many different perspectives, so many different sets of life experience. And 2012, I was living in Amsterdam for the summer and somebody sent me a video that was, uh, you know, entertainingly educational. Okay. And then uh, the next time I opened the YouTube app, it started recommending other things like that and then more things like that. And I sort of fell down this rabbit hole of Vlogbrothers and SciShow and mental floss and minute physics and like more and more of those things. I'm like just eating it all up. Like, oh my God, I didn't realize that this platform, I thought it was all cat videos. I had no idea. <laughs> and, you know, 2012, that wasn't an unreasonable perspective to have. Yeah. But uh, I, I started realizing there's all this stuff. I'm like, God, this is so great. And then I moved back to the US and I, I decided to get a, a camera set up and I wanted to make videos like that too. And I had, you know, a little bit of success, but I was comparing myself to much bigger channels. So when my first video got 60,000 views and not a million views, I thought I had failed and I was ready to give up. Yeah, you're being humble right now because I feel like that was a lot of success in like 2012. I feel like it was a huge fumble. If I had realized how good the trajectory was that early on, yeah. I would have stayed with it. And maybe I I'd, agree I'd be with you. In it. And working with podcasters in the earliest days, helping them with sponsor stuff and then uh, making friends with YouTubers, me building any of the things that I built or the company that I run now, it's all based on like a series of relationships and getting to have conversations, having access to people within the industry with names and with clout. I don't know. I've been fortunate enough and I guess smart enough to leverage relationships or, or to know when it's worth building a relationship. And then yeah. you meet good people and you have good conversations and you, you try to be an interesting person. And over time, uh, you've built up enough connections that you can start to do interesting things with those connections, put people in a room together or be the catalyst for a new conversation. Then people remember that and they bring you back into another conversation later. And all these good things start happening and you've, you've built this tapestry of connections. Friendships, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where I am now, I don't want to, you know, hashtag blessed, right? Mm-hmm. I get to talk to people and have these conversations and get this insight in a way that 
2012 me would never have thought that I'd actually get to like hang out with these people or, or work with these people or, or have meaningful interactions or make meaningful contributions to their businesses or their lives or this industry. It's also because you earned it though. Like I feel like you're talking about it right now and like uh, you lucked into it and like in a way like there is like serendipity and all this stuff, but it's because you're like incredibly likable and smart that all of these connections have worked out. And I think like we were friends for a year and a half, I think before I like signed on with Standard and we started like formally also working together. And it was just because I liked you so much and I believe like so much in the mission and what you're doing. I think that you earn your luck, right? I, I don't want to say that the universe did a thing and I just casually sat back and watched it happen. <laughs> I'm leading into the thing that I find most interesting about you. Okay. Hmm. You are, relative to all other things, still a fairly small creator. You're still fairly early in your career, maybe not in timeline, but like the journey you're on you're still within the first few steps. Yeah, totally. It's not like you're in your 30s, you've been in this for a long time, you built an empire, you're getting uh, mega banger views after mega banger views. You're still relatively uh, young, both in uh, career and in age. And you're at the beginning of what I I feel truly is going to be a very interesting journey. That's so sweet. And um, it means a lot you think that. But the thing that I find most interesting about you is that despite that, your ability to make connections with people that exact thing, finding your way into a room or into a conversation that others would would kill for that level of access. You are so good at this. You are so fluid at this <laughs> that like I have truly never seen anybody who is as effective at building and maintaining relationships at such a high level this early in the game. I think that it's something that I just naturally really care about, like being friends with people and like relationships are so important to me. And because I'm like so extroverted, like I get so much of my energy from being around other people. And I think about it a lot because when I was 13, I started the YouTube channel and I like didn't know anyone. I had no connections in the industry. I didn't know any other YouTubers. I didn't even know anyone like in film or media, like no connections whatsoever. And kind of like over time, I've been able to become friends with so many of the people that I like really looked up to and like were the inspirations for why I started YouTube. And then also like tons of other friends um, that are like in the creator economy, like Dave or just like adjacent industries. And it's all because of like hitting the upload button for the first time. And it's enabled like this career that like I genuinely like Dave is talking about have like 100% conviction in that it's going to be a big thing and keep growing. And I think a large part of that is because I get to work with incredible people that enable so many things like Dave. Well, I want to be really careful for this not to be like like the Dave show or even just like us kissing each other's asses. <laughs> there's okay. there's plenty, yes. plenty, plenty we disagree on. And I want to get into that stuff. Oh, God. All right, let's do it. Well, or not even disagree, but like you have a different level of perspective. You have a different uh, experience with certain things. And one of the rules here is this isn't an interview. This is a conversation. Um, you know, we're we're going to be trading stories. But thinking about the way you would build something, the way you're building your business as a creator, yeah. something that we've talked about a bunch is products that you can make. Yeah, you've you've kind of gone down this path, and you and I have talked a bunch about you want to make coffee. You yes. love mm -hmm. coffee. Your yes. body is probably three fourths coffee at this point. I would say yes, accurate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're passionate about this. You want to make coffee. And like one of your dreams is to like productize that and mm -hmm. make coffee for the masses, like build a coffee brand, build like a cold brew brand. Yeah. I don't know if you and I fully see eye to eye on what that is, how that should work and whether or not it's a good idea. Yeah. I'd love to tease that out here because future plans can be anything. And the, and the honest truth is like, if you want to do a thing, my job is to support you however I can. I do think that it's worth like that back and forth. 
the purpose of the show uh, is not really to fight so much as is giving people an insight into the kind of conversations that happen typically behind closed doors. This is the NDA bit. Yeah. Yeah. We just DM'd about this like yesterday. I think like we were talking about a different product yesterday and you like were blowing my mind with a lot of the things that you were saying. Yeah. Getting into like this is a, a version of a conversation, at least that you wouldn't normally get to hear in public. Yeah. I, I can't stress enough. Like my job here is to be supportive and like help you find the right path. But totally. tell me uh, a little bit about like the way you think about the coffee stuff and what you think that could be. So I'll give a little context first. I talk about cold brew a lot. Just like I love cold brew. It's my favorite coffee. And so I was just like randomly mentioning it in videos. And it seemed like something that like the community was like really resonating with. They were sending me pictures of their cold brew. People were trying it because of me and sending me pictures. I was getting like DMs all the time, like send me your recipe. I was like, all right, I think there's like probably something here at the same time. Emma Chamberlain had just come out with coffee and she's like one of my favorite creators. And like for her, coffee makes so much sense because like she's a lifestyle creator and it just seamlessly integrates. I think with tech, it's a little harder. But anyways, this is like 2020-ish. I'm like a wide-eyed, like I think merch is easy. It's not, it's obviously really complicated. And so I think that my goal when I, when I was just like talking to Dave, honestly, as friends, because it's like before we were even working together, I had mentioned it and Dave kind of like floated around the idea of like it being more effective as like maybe like a creative collective, which I'll like let you expand on in a sec. And then also, I guess as time has gone on and I focused on like some other like brief merch projects, I've realized that the only way to do cold brew coffee eventually is going to be like when the channel is one, like much bigger and two, when like I can build a team around helping me do it versus like becoming the CEO of that company too, because I think as a creator, like your valuable asset is your time on camera and all these other things. And that it's so easy to like see all these exciting opportunities in your inbox. And then your job is to like say no to a lot of stuff so you can like keep growing the business. And I also think sometimes as a creator, like it's easy to think that just because you think something's cool, like the audience will think it's cool. Every single month I do these like monthly logos where I take the core MBT logo and then I like design a dreamscape with an incredible designer um, where it's like theme for the month. So like October, it would be like Halloween. And it's like, I really want to do like a notebook or a hoodie or something at the end of the year with like all 12 logos on it. And we're like talking it through. I don't know, Dave, you want to pop in here with what you said to me, but I thought it was like really insightful. And I think we're probably not going to do it now because of what you were talking about. My point was that like, that is a fun community building thing that you can do, but probably has less value to an individual person in terms of money yeah. than it does to you. To me. I remember you said you have to assume your logo has no value to anyone but you. I was like, yeah, it's true, right? And then you were like, the product needs to also offer like an additional utility if you want them to buy it. And that was really, I felt like very insightful. The most popular products that we've ever been involved with in terms of merch have always been things that are useful, specifically paper products. Like the Real Engineering Notebook is our bestseller ever. And it's a pretty simple concept. It's a beautiful like Moleskine style bound notebook where the pages are all uh, like graph paper. So it's an engineering notebook. And if you are an engineer and a fan of real engineering enough to have heard of real engineering, getting this notebook that's, you know, debossed blue with the logo on the front, but not anything over the top, the function of it, even if you've never heard of the YouTube channel, a graph paper notebook that says real engineering on the front, it's just doing what it says on the tin. So there's a real symphony of synergies where from any angle, this looks like a thing that you can understand. It's not like you've got, you know, a Mr. Beast notebook where, you know, you're signaling your fandom in addition to whatever utility you get out of the notebook, which can be, I guess, okay. But I don't think that people are buying this notebook for the logo. I think they're buying the notebook because it's an engineering notebook, because it serves a specific purpose for the type of person who would be in that audience. The other popular products that we've 
ever sold for creators. Uh, T-shirts don't tend to do well. Enamel pins do because people like collecting those and they're small. They don't get in the way. You don't have to produce different sizes. They don't take up much space for inventory and warehousing. And people like getting, you know, 30 pins, not just wearing one, but they'll cover their backpack in pins or like the strap of their laptop bag or whatever it is. People like those. What do you think about like print on demand? Like creators that do like a Teespring or like a company where it's like, they're not buying t-shirts in advance. So like they don't have the inventory, but then the t-shirts tend to be like lower quality. I mean, that's just it. You're you're now putting your branding on something of low quality mm-hmm. and and getting crappy margins on it to yeah. sell it to the people who are the most in you're you're punishing the people who are most excited about you with an inferior product and you're getting less money for it. Yeah. The upside is a little bit of money. The downside is you've put your name on something that isn't good. Yeah. And I, that's not a comment on Teespring. I, I know that you you said that name out loud and I don't want it to be like I'm commenting on them. Okay. But I, print print on demand is inherently going to be a little bit lower quality than like a beautifully screen printed shirt. Yeah. And that's just a fact of how this works. Print on demand can be good. It can be. You need like the right partner, right? Right, right, right. And vetting that if you're the sort of creator who's going to do a print on demand thing because you're not sure how many shirts people are going to buy, you probably don't have a ton of resources to investigate the different print on demand services and find one that you feel is up to your standard. Yeah. So like as a general rule, I would say, don't do that. People don't really like buying t-shirts anyway. It's complicated because like there's all the different sizes and yeah, print on demand kind of obviates that, but like the trade-off is, well, now you're selling people a crappy thing, but also just t-shirts don't sell that well. And we talk about this a lot, like sponsorships, like when creators do a bad sponsor, they're screwing over their most dedicated audience. It makes no sense to me when like they push these like unethical sponsors or like they do a sponsored read. And then at the end of the read, they finally tell you like that it was sponsored. That to me is like crazy because you end up really like taking advantage of like your most dedicated community, like the people that enable your entire job. Yeah. When you do a sponsorship, what you're selling to the sponsor really is not airtime. It's not views. If they just want views, they can get the views cheaper through AdSense. True. AdSense is a better deal for views. What they're paying for really is access to the trust relationship that exists between you and your audience. Totally. So you're selling trust and When you sell that trust, whatever you're putting in front of the audience, you can build up trust or you can remove trust. You know, think of it like a bank. When when you're making deposits, it's because you're showing the audience, you're rewarding that trust. You're showing them that you value that relationship. You value that trust. You treat them with respect. You're only going to put in front of them products and services that you actually believe in that you think are good. And then even if the audience doesn't click and buy things from that sponsor, they still recognize the respect. Totally. And they appreciate the respect. So the next time you show them something from a sponsor, they're going to pay a little bit more attention because you're building up your reputation for the kinds of things that you'll put in front of the audience. These are the kinds of sponsors that you work with. That's part of your brand, part of the experience of you. Are there like creator red flags for you? Like, what would you say like for a creator that's listening to this and they either don't work with an agency or they do work with an agency, but the agency is like constantly pushing them just to take any deal. What are like the types of brands that you think creators should not work with and why? Who's interviewing who here? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're early enough in you and I working together where this isn't like a, a for the show question. I think this is like genuinely, this is the sort of thing. That I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> we talk about this. We're thinking through this together. Yeah. In my experience, what you don't want to do is you don't want to sell the audience something because you were paid to do it. 
Of course, you're going to get paid to do it, but you shouldn't select things based on who's paying. You should okay, select based yeah. on what you actually like. And I also think that if you're selling the audience something that you also talk about in your videos, you're on thin ice. Terrible. Like you click on a video, it's like a camera review or like a drone review or phone review. And then at the end, they're like, by the way, like thanks to whatever brand for making it possible. And you're like, what the hell just happened here? Like, yeah, yeah. In the, the creator Slack, we've got a, a gear channel. And it's yeah. my favorite of all Slack channels. I love, I love uh, talking about cameras and microphone stuff. It's my hobby. We will obsessively, like a new Canon camera comes out, a new Sony camera comes out. Like we obsessively watch like Gerald Undone. Yeah, he's great. And who's, uh, you know, our, our friend on Nebula now. Oh, yeah. He's like a new creator. I forgot that. I made like a minute and a half long appearance in his soap video. I got I get to be in a video. I get to be in a Gerald Undone video, which is a really neat thing. Mission accomplished. He has sold me so many cameras. He has sold me so many lenses. And I've gone to him before, like DMing him or whatever, like, hey, what do you think of this? Or how do I, and we'll, we'll you know, talk behind the scenes. And now that we're getting yeah. to work together, it's also kind of obsessing about cameras and stuff. So nice. But like as a group, me, Renee, Thomas Frank, Devin from Legal Eagle, there's a handful of us who like just obsess over camera nerd stuff. We watched a video, I won't name the creator, but we watched a video by a very popular camera YouTuber mm -hmm. who was going off about how great this camera was and how amazing it was. And then somebody in the room pointed out like, yeah, scroll back to this time code. And we do. And down at the very bottom of the screen in Stop. small print, which you can't even see on your phone, there was a, this was paid for by Canon for like three seconds. And then it went away. No other disclosure. Is that even allowed? I thought you have to say like a verbal disclosure. Whether it is or isn't, I'm not the police. I'm not the FCC or the <laughs> FTC. Like I'm not going after the guy. Seeing this like really passionate, this camera is the best thing ever review, fucking review. Wow. This is his opinion. His expert opinion is this camera is great. Paid for by Canon. That to me, the fact that he did a paid review at all is gross. The fact that it was hidden makes it extra gross. Yeah. Oh, that sucks. And obviously gross. I think the less obvious part is doing a paid review at all is horrifying. We can't trust that guy now. Dave and I were just on a deal that I was like super excited about. And I wanted to do it as like an integration or a post on social, just like a fun thing. And they wanted to be a paid review. And I, I said to them, like, I don't do paid reviews. And they're like, all right, then it's not going to work for this activation. And I was shocked because that means that people, other people must be saying yes the paid review. Oh, everybody says yes to this. Yeah. And you can't like, how is it a review if it's paid? Like genuinely, I just like that doesn't, it's mutually exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. This guy who, who made this video, like from that point forward, like none of us watch his stuff anymore. None of us oh, go to sucks. him for, for opinion. And I'm sure he's a good guy. Like I have no idea who it is, but like, I, I think a lot of the people that do it aren't bad people. They just like either don't know or like their manager pushes them to take it. Like, what do you think like the agent's role in this position is? Like, Shouldn't they say to you, like, don't take this deal? What the what the position is or should be? Should be. I don't know. I was talking to a creator again who I won't name, but not somebody I know well, but uh, seems like a, a great person. And okay. he was he came to me because he's been working with a manager and he's thinking about signing a longer term contract with this person. Okay. And uh, somebody pointed him my way to, like, get advice on the thing. And I was very upfront. I'm like, I don't I don't have a pitch for you. I'm not going to try to sign you or anything. But like, I'd love to hear what it is you think you're getting out of this. And I'll be helpful in whatever way I can be helpful. And he walked me through like how they work together and, and what's going on. And it was stuff like, yeah, the manager gets 10% of whatever I make. Okay. And I'm like, 10% of uh, like whatever you make. He's, he's like, uh, yeah, of brand deals, of AdSense. If I take on investment, he'll get 10% of that. And I'm like, wait, what? Wow. 
Oh my God, what's happening right now? Like, well, let's let's really think that through. What what does investment mean? He's like, well, if I do like a spotter deal or something like that. And I'm like, oh, cool, yeah, payday loan. So if you do a spotter deal, I might argue, nothing against the spotter people, I've chatted with them, they, they seem lovely. But I think that selling the future potential of your AdSense revenue, unless you need the money. Makes no sense. Uh, I don't know who this is for. I agree. It's a payday loan with potentially infinite interest. Yeah, why not take out a loan from a bank? Like, honestly, I think that well, a lot of the times that may make more sense. I mean, it's hard to get approved as a creator, though. That's the thing, I guess. Right, right. You know, we're we're it's still in an infancy in the creator economy. I, I get why, but like, who's $50,000 away from being like the biggest creator on YouTube, yes. but is struggling today? It's like the kind of person who would most benefit from this sort of setup is also the person who's least likely to take it. And I don't want this to be like just me shitting on um, those kinds of things, but I do think of them like payday loans. I don't necessarily think it's predatory, though it certainly can be. Yeah, there are certain companies that have definitely have the contracts and you're like, oh my God, like yeah, it's really bad yeah, terms. Yeah, but uh, what I said to this dude was like, well, think this through. If it's not a good deal for you, a good manager should tell you, here's why you shouldn't do this. Here's yeah. why this doesn't work for you and really think it through with you. Yeah. When he's getting 10% of everything, his incentive is to convince you to do this deal and yeah. to take on as much debt as possible because he's getting 10%. True. It's not free money. Yeah. Oh my God. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Because he doesn't need to pay back the loan. Right, right. It's infinite upside for him. Yeah, there's no downside. And he could he would actually tell you to take even more. Yeah. If he's like a bad guy, because he'll just make even more money. Or not even a bad guy. Like it's easy to lose sight of the long term implications when there's money on the table. And I think that's why you and I work so well together, because we're literally only about the long term. Like I think we both can like see the vision of what it can be. And so I think that sometimes creators like aren't entrepreneurial, like they just like got into creating because they love making videos. And so a lot of them don't have the sense of like thinking long-term about like brand reputation and audience credibility and all these things, because like they may take a $10,000 deal now, they could be losing like millions in the future. And also yeah. more importantly, yeah. like their ethics, you know, like just like yep. going to bed at night and feeling like a good person. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of like managers right. don't help. Right. Like, I don't know. I've, I've heard a lot of horror stories about like bad agencies and managers, whether it just be like, negligence or like telling them like oh like take this deal because it doesn't like the end of the day like the manager is like going to just be less invested in like one particular creator's reputation because worst case if like it goes bad they'll just like find another creator yeah i worry about management companies sort of for this reason where if the agency that you're working with if you don't have an exclusive relationship and they don't have any obligations to make a best effort to uh, get you set up with things, yeah. then you don't have an agent. You have a... Someone that brings you deals sometimes. Yeah. Like, is your agent, do they exist to add value or to extract value? Interesting. What do you think like makes up like a good agent? Like, I think we should talk about this because we've had this conversation tons of times. What do you think like makes a good agent versus like a bad agent? Like, what are like the characteristics that creators should look for? Fiduciary obligation. Okay. Somebody who contractually, there's a signed fucking piece of paper <laughs> that says they have to make decisions based on what is best for the client. There's a thousand things that we've been offered that I've turned down because it disproportionately benefited me. Interesting. And I would love to say that I did that because I'm just a swell guy and I'm altruistic. No, mm -hmm. I did it because we, in the very beginning, before there were dollars on the table that could have turned me to the dark side, yeah. set up rules that prevent me from doing it now. Like, what would you turn down? Can you give an example or is it like NDA'd? 
No, uh, years ago we worked with Wix for a few things. Okay. This doesn't make them look bad at all, so I don't, I don't think it's a problem to share it. Okay. They had to cancel something uh, kind of at the last minute, but within the, the contract said that they could con uh, cancel up to 30 days before. And okay. it was like 32 days before they canceled. Mm. It sucked a little bit because it was right before the holidays. And so it was a bit oh, of a God. scramble to get the spot rebooked. You know, last minute thing. It was fine. We got it rebooked. That, that wasn't hard. But I was saying to the guy, um, he happened to be in town. He was in the office. We were talking about it. And I said, you know, that this does sort of suck for us because now there's a bit of a scramble. And he's like, hey, look, I don't want to sour the relationship. Whatever your commission on that would have been, I'm happy to pay it. Wow. Kind of a cool move on his part. And that's why I say it's not a, not a bad story in any way. He, he, yeah. was trying to, he was trying to do right by everybody. Yeah. And I said, no, thank you. And he's like, no, no, I don't mind. I'm happy to pay it. And I'm like, yeah. I can't take your money. And he's like, why not? He's like, why can't you say? And I said, because if you pay me, you're paying me. And now money has gone from you to me. That can't happen. Yeah. And that's not the relationship. Yeah, because you don't ever want to get paid by the brands, right? Right, right. No, I get paid because you got paid. Yes. I get a sense. commission on what you make. If I'm getting paid directly by the brand, well, shit, now it's not clean anymore. Yeah. Now the money's dirty. Now it's questionable where my loyalties are. Like that looks an awful, from an outside perspective, that looks an awful lot like a backroom deal mm, to, yeah. to buy them out of kind of screwing over a creator. That is not yeah. what it was. That's not what he was trying to do. That's not the energy that was in the room. Yeah. But it could look that way to the creators, right? Yeah. Yeah. He just recognized that even though this, the, it was well within parameters that they had the right to do that, it still kind of sucked. And he was trying to like, you know, make things cool. And what we wound up doing is I said, how about instead of the commission number going to me, spend that on smaller creators? Oh, that's so wholesome. Put that back into the ecosystem. Yeah. I'll get a commission on that. Yeah. But like only because the money went to the creators. He's like, you're cool with that? I'm like, that's the only thing I can be cool with. That's the only thing I'll do. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's like, all right, done. And so that that's what happened. Okay. That's a wholesome ending. Yeah. And, you know, it was uh, everybody saw eye to eye and creators still came out ahead. We were able to get the the spots for the bigger creator rebooked and you know, everything turned out fine. But I had to say no. I had to say no to what kind of would have been free money yeah. that would have been good for us and we could have done things with it. And maybe we could have done good things for creators. Yeah, maybe we could have invested it in creator tools or whatever. But even if you did, it's still now you can't say that you've never taken money from a brand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? then then the money's dirty. And then yeah. my, my hands will always be dirty. I think it's important that whatever you are, and this goes back to your question about uh, the, the kinds of, of brand deals you you should or shouldn't do. Whatever yeah. you tell people you are, they will believe you to a point. Mm. My favorite example of this is like, have you ever seen proof that Devin Stone passed the bar? No. Do you Have you seen documentation from the medical board that Dr. Mike is actually a real doctor? No, they just go on YouTube and we believe them. Mm -hmm. When you go to watch a legal legal video, you don't know that he's a real lawyer. You assume that he's telling the truth. Why wouldn't he? Yeah. People on the internet, they always tell the truth. That's right? so funny, actually. Yeah. It's like, well, he's got, he's got a nice suit. He must be a lawyer. Yeah, he has a suit on. He looks lawyery. Yeah. He says all the right words. Dr. Mike is wearing scrubs. He must be a real doctor. He's on my TV. That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because like, I think we're all like skeptical of so many things. But then, yeah, like when people say that they're like an expert in something, we immediately believe it on YouTube. Like therapists react to whatever. I'm like, yeah, they're for sure therapists. Sure, like, sure. Yeah, of course. Be anyone. But uh, wh whatever you tell your audience you are, they're going to believe you within reason until mm. you give them a, a cause to be skeptical. They're just going to believe you. And there's a responsibility that comes with that. There's a, a bit of a double edged sword there where if you're telling your audience that you are a technology expert enthusiast 
and you are sharing your pure, real, unadulterated opinions. Yeah. And then I see that your last uh, phone review was was sponsored by Samsung. Mm-hmm. Or let's take a step removed. You, it wasn't even a phone review. It's not that Samsung paid you to promote a Samsung phone or review a Samsung phone. Maybe you were you were talking about um, I don't know doorbell cameras. Okay. And that was sponsored by Samsung. You've still taken Samsung's money. And I've had uh, camera YouTuber people tell me that like I'll do uh, Canon sponsorships, but not on Canon videos. So it's like it doesn't matter. You've still taken their money. You you are still in a financial relationship with them. Okay, this is interesting because like I, this is not an area I agree with you in general. But I have actually worked with Samsung for licensing content, which I think is a little bit different. Let's fight. But let's do it. So basically, like I've made videos completely like unbiased relationship with Samsung. And then they've liked a piece of content and they've put together like a YouTuber's reacts video or they put everyone's video in the same piece of content and then they link below the full review so people can get like the unbiased opinion and they pay for that one time use of the footage. Mm -hmm. And to me, that feels like okay because it's like in the agreement, it's very well laid out that that's like the only relationship that you have and that they're not like they have to link back to the full thing and show that it's like your unbiased opinion, whatever in the video. But I do agree, like, I would never do a sponsored, like, phone review or, like, a sponsored post on, like, a Samsung phone or something if I'm then intending to make content on it. If you are in the pocket of big Samsung, then anything you say about Samsung, you as a journalism outlet are not large enough that you can church and state this. Mm, interesting. Why? It is not uncommon for, uh, like, Macworld Magazine to review the new MacBook Pro and also run ads from Apple. Yes, that's a good point. Because there are different departments that handle those two things. Yeah. And they have internal ethical rules that keep those processes separated. Now, you and I might recognize that it's still kind of the same equation. The the business, the CEO still knows that these things exist, but those two departments must operate independently. And if they don't, then watchdog groups or consumers will see that there's a, a delta there and they'll push back. For an individual influencer, it is way harder. And because influencer culture is new enough and and is still, uh, I think the parasocial element makes it different. I agree. Yeah, because it's like if you were out with a friend, right? And they were like hyping something up all night and then you found out like later that they worked for the company and they were like an ambassador. You'd feel like played. Yeah. It feels different than like when a celebrity does it. Cause I think we feel like we're friends with the creators that we watch. Whereas when a celebrity promotes something, I'm like, yeah, like they don't know me. Like we're not friends. I respect their work, but it's just a very different relationship. Like you feel almost like used or like played when a creator makes a misstep, I think more so than like traditional media. It goes from like my friend telling me about a cool thing to at the very end, it's like, oh, this whole thing has been a commercial. You, yeah. This is a transaction. <laughs> I'm not your friend. I'm a mark. It feels different. It feels terrible. And because of the parasocial relationship that the audience has with you, they see you as a friend. They see totally. you as somebody that they trust. You're you're their buddy. You're hanging out, right? And then at the end, it's like, oh, by the way, just so you know, I'm only hanging out with you because Samsung paid me to. How would you define parasocial relationship? What does that mean to you? Ooh, okay. I think a parasocial relationship is a like relationship where someone feels like they know you on a really intimate level, but you don't know them back. Yes. That's exactly how I would describe it. Me too. Well, obviously, because I just described it that way. <laughs> <laughs> you agree with yourself. Good I agree know. with myself. Good. I'm like, no cognitive dissonance here. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it checks out. So like, yeah, that feeling that like, 
And you can get this a little bit like with a pop star, like you listen to Taylor Swift songs so much that like you, yeah. you feel a connection with her lyrics where like when the, the, the longer version of All Too Well drops, you're like, oh, like I'm freaking out. I'm staying up until midnight. Yeah. Like you're like, OK, like these lyrics and the way it changes, like now I feel like I'm more connected to her story. Yeah. But I feel like you don't I feel like you don't think that you're friends. Like, I think that, you know. Yeah, well, you, there's a, a weird, there's a sense of intimacy. I think it's a step in that direction. Like, you feel like you know something about this person. There is a mismatch. There's a disparity in the level of emotional investment between those two parties. And that's kind of normal. One of my favorite bands ever, Harvey Danger. Sean Nelson, the lead singer and songwriter, uh, the band is broken up, but uh, Sean Nelson, maybe the best lyricist ever heard just genius level lyrics where song after song there's a line or two where it's like god i wish i'd written that i wish i'd been smart enough to write that oh my god like you listen to these songs or like you fall in love with a band or an artist like you listen to this stuff over and over again and you start to feel like not that you know this person but that sense of like if i ever met this person i bet we'd be friends like i yes. bet like, oh my god we, <laughs> i felt that so many times i bring up harvey danger because years ago uh on another show that i did slash will be doing again unprofessional okay Sean, I had him on as a guest. No way. We did the show and, you know, we talked about the things we talked about. And then we stopped recording. My co-host dropped off and Sean and I stayed on the phone chatting for like another hour and a half. Love it. So you were right. And there was this like, there's an emotional vulnerability in the lyrics that was, had made me believe that this person had life experiences or perspectives that were similar to my own. And then being on this phone call, even just sharing a little bit of a connection there it became clear to me that like I wasn't wrong. This person is sort of broken in ways that I am broken and we could we could understand one another or like we have the same kinds of anxieties and we're trading stories. And it's not that I had secretly known him all this time. It's that this feeling of a person who would write these things, like I kind of thought I had a sense of who he might be. And then that yeah. turned out to be correct. I've also met people whose work I loved who turned out to be completely different or whatever. How disappointing is that? Like, that's the worst. Eh, I mean, people are people. Yeah. Well, if, if you hype them up in your head, like, and then like you think you're going to be best friends and you get there and they're like, not the vibe at all. I think it sucks. It's like almost like a different type of breakup. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really interesting way of describing that. Yeah. Uh, I have to process that. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, maybe the lesson here is don't don't emotionally invest in people you don't actually know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My point with the talking about, uh, you know, this person, I think the world of the guy. But at no point in that did I mistake this for a friendship or for a relationship. Mm, interesting. I had an image in my head of who he was that may or may not line up with reality, but I wouldn't describe it as parasocial. To me, the the parasocial part is where it's not like I don't know. Brad Pitt isn't a person I know. Brad Pitt is rusty from Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. Or he's a guy that you see on the red carpet, right? Like, right. He's a series of characters in stories. He's not a character in my story. Oh my God. I love that. When I watch, I don't know, a Gerald Undone video, Gerald is like my friend who knows camera stuff. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely caught myself like telling someone about a YouTuber that I like don't know at all. And I'm like, oh, like my friend. And they're like, what the hell? Like, we're not friends, but yeah. <laughs> I don't it's know that like, person. You can like get into it because you spend so much time with them. They're authentically themselves. Like that's, I think that that's why musicians are closer to the parasocial relationship than like actors are because actors, like they're playing a character and like you can fall in love with their character or really like their character, but like, you know that it's an act a little bit. And obviously you can see them in interviews. Musicians, I think are a little bit closer because they're singing about like, like so many personal experiences. And I think we live in a world that like 
some people really struggle with like vulnerability. I think our culture sometimes like equates being vulnerable with being weak. And so like we're, we're all lacking a sense of vulnerability in some relationships. And so we crave it in like music is like my take. Hmm. I think when you're a YouTuber, you're like yourself on camera, you're talking about something that you're really passionate about, especially in these niche communities where you're talking about tech or camera, you could be the only person that they know that's equally as excited about the thing that they're so excited about. Like before I started YouTube, I had no friends that were interested in tech. Like they all were interested in like other things that I liked, like sports or music or pop culture, but like tech was like it for me and none of them cared about it at all. And so when I started YouTube and I started becoming friends with other tech YouTubers and like building the MBT community, it was like, of life-changing experience and like when i first even discovered marquez before we became friends like i loved his videos and i felt like i knew him and i felt like we just like understood each other because we both cared so much about this topic and so i think like that's one of the reasons why it happens is because like you're speaking to something that they love and then also and the other thing is that if you like go back to like evolutionarily like times like we were never exposed to this many people, right? Like we were in our tribe. We knew the people within our tribe. And so social media has really created this like bizarre situation where you can know someone so intimately and like spend a reoccurring amount of time with them, but never actually know them. And I think that there's just no way for us to like really process that. So we can like, I don't know if you experienced this, but like I can understand it's parasocial and yet like a small part of me still feels like I know them. Knowing that the audience might see you that way, knowing that the audience might see you as a friend, yeah, does that change how you view your level of responsibility. I know that there's an element of like, I became a YouTuber to avoid responsibility. Mm. <laughs> but like with, with great audience comes great responsibility, at least to some extent. How much does that impact you? How do you feel that? I definitely feel it. I mean, I think I love building community. Like it's just naturally one of the things that I like have always loved. Um, even like before YouTube, like for my birthday one year, like I hosted a midnight run instead of like doing a party, which is like when you make sandwiches for like homeless people. Oh, wow. Other years, like I've done like SPCA stuff. Like I just love like a common goal and a community around it. I don't even know why. I think I just like connecting with people in like meaningful ways more so than like just service level conversation. And so with YouTube, like it's, it feels a little bit like a responsibility. Like I never want to do anything that like will ruin the relationship in the same way I wouldn't with a friendship. But I also think it's so exciting for me, like human psychology and like relationship dynamics, like make me really excited. And so it almost feels like a fun challenge to kind of navigate it. Sometimes there are other times, like I've definitely had experiences with viewers that have like made me really uncomfortable. I think that also probably speaks to the fact that like I'm a female in a male dominant industry and some of the viewers, like there's been times where I felt really uncomfortable and that's unfortunate. But I think in general, like I feel a responsibility to always do the right thing, but I also feel a responsibility to always do the right thing in my real life too. So I don't know if it's like, YouTuber specific, but I think that I respect the community so much because I relate to them so much. And they've also like enabled so many incredible opportunities that like, I'm going to like pick making them happy every single time over like doing something that I think would upset them or like, yeah, like whether that be like a sponsorship or making a video that I think they wouldn't like, or so I always try to do the right thing. Of course I make mistakes and stuff like everyone does, but I think, yeah, being a good person and like being like a good community facilitator is genuinely very, very important to me. It's like one of my top goals. Okay. So let's circle this back. If your goal is community, the things that you make above and beyond videos, like if you're going to make a product. It should be community oriented, right? Does a t-shirt improve your community? Does it add value to the community? Does it strengthen your position in that community? Does it increase your ability to build community? I think for some creators it does. Like I think for like a yes theory, where like the t-shirts like seek discomfort. It's like, you guys are all subscribing to like the same mentality. You see them on the street, you mm -hmm. instantly have this mm -hmm. connection. That makes sense to me. There's a shared philosophy. Yeah. Right? It's like an idea, 
right? And you're, so you're selling an idea versus a t-shirt. I think for NBT, like, no, right now, at least, I don't think selling a t-shirt with a logo like makes any sense because the odds that two people that like follow NBT, the odds are like pretty slim, they would run into each other. And also even if they did, they would know that they share a tech interest. Like with the coffee, for example, one day, I think it'd be really cool to have like a cafe that's like techie and productivity based and like people can co-work there. That to me feels like building a community more so than like launching a t-shirt. But that's also kind of like a logistical nightmare. Michael Beirut from Pentagram, who they designed everything. He's a principal designer over there. His okay. line was something along the lines of like, a logo is an empty vessel that you pour meaning into over time. It's a good brand that makes a logo successful. And I think that as a YouTuber, it's really easy to be like, I get views and I have this logo. Therefore, people have an emotional attachment to this logo similar mm -hmm. to my emotional attachment to this logo. And I'm just going to tell you, they don't. <laughs> they Nobody don't care. cares. <laughs> you can get to that point. I think that it's a it's a long road to get there. And it's a certain kind of audience and a certain kind of creator. <laughs> it's I'm realizing right now, I'm wearing Mr. Beast socks right now. Interesting. Okay, so tell me, what do you think the difference is? Like, why would you wear Mr. Beast, but not a different creator? There was a, a bit that I was doing for, I don't think it ever got filmed. I did a scene with Jimmy. He makes a, he does a cameo in the movie. Okay. And yeah. there was going to be a bit where I come back after visiting him. And the next time you see me, I'm just like head to toe in Mr. Beast merch. I love that. Literally head to toe. Like I had on a Mr. Beast hat and a hoodie and, a, and, and, and everything. I love it. The socks, I think are actually kind of cool because one is pink with blue logos and one is blue with pink logos. And so it. like the socks match, but don't match. It's kind of a fun uh, as socks go, yeah. People may ask you about it. Nobody's ever asked me about my socks. Not about those socks. I would. I compliment people's socks, like as random as that sounds, like if they're cool. They are. They're cool socks, but they just look like socks. If you don't know what that logo is, and that's kind of the point, right? It's an empty vessel. If you don't recognize the Mr. Beast logo, you don't give a shit. It's just a sock. It might look cool. Maybe it doesn't. If you do recognize the logo, then I've signaled myself as a Mr. Beast fan or something, yeah. which is strange because I'm not eight years old. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think like if I see someone wearing Mr. Beast on the street, I'm like, you get it. Like you're following one of the best creators. But I think that the movie thing is actually worth talking about. So for anyone that doesn't know, Patrick Willems is a Nebula creator. And he basically started integrating like this coconut into his videos. It's not going to make a lot of sense if you don't follow him, but it's something that the community really resonated with. And so he created like this feature film on Nebula, actually, and then did a in-person movie launch. Dave's in the movie. Lots of other creators are in it. And it was like pretty surreal. Like a lot of people came. I feel like people made friends at this event because they had Patrick Willems like as a connection point almost. Like he was almost like their mutual friend, even though they didn't know him. And I feel like that's an example of a community-based event where it's like you're actually providing value to them. And then you sold the coconuts like as merch. Yeah, this is this is actually a great connection point to the merch conversation. Yeah. Well, there's two things that, that we were talking about doing. One was what if we did plush coconuts? Because it's like, that's a brown ball with googly <laughs> eyes on it. <laughs> To be fair, the, the company that, that did the actual production, we were, they worked with our design team, but what they came back with actually does look like a coconut. It, it actually does yeah. look, it, it's, it's pretty well done. It's like shockingly really good. We had to order some crazy number of these, but they were relatively cheap. So we, we did and we figured maybe over time. How many did you order? It was like 500. Oh my God, you ordered 500 coconuts? It was something insane. That's insane. And in order to get the margins to where it was worth doing, like that just made the most sense. That's insane. And so we did it. We sold out. You sold 500 coconuts? We were out of those coconuts. Well, we we did enamel charl pins. Oh, my God. And they sold out in like a day. That's crazy. There's a video where we refer to that. And I think that my line in the thing is they sold out in 10 minutes, which isn't true. But they did sell out in a day. That's crazy. Yeah, bonkers. But why? Like, what's the... Because there's no... Like, going back to our earlier conversation, right? There's no, like, inherent value with a coconut. 
empty vessel, right? Yeah. Here's the part that like blows my mind about this. Charles the coconut <laughs> as a character, a yeah. coconut with googly eyes, mm-hmm. like starts appearing in these videos and people hated it. It was so divisive. Oh, people really? would complain about it. People would go into his comments or onto his subreddit and complain about the stupid coconut thing. Interesting. And then over time, people would comment that like, okay, fine, they're bought in on the coconut thing and you'd win people over. But there's also people who to this day will still complain about it. Wow. There was a comment on on uh, his subreddit when he dropped the trailer, I think, something like, yeah, now you can finally get back to making real video <laughs> essays and not not spend all your time like, you know, making these middle schooler videos with your friends. But his response was, you realize that the entire last year of videos has not had any narrative stuff on it because I've been making this movie. Yeah. Like that's all you've gotten for the last year is pure video essays. What are you complaining about? Interesting. Well, that honestly goes back to audience expectation, right? It's like they feel like you owe them something sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in this case, I think it was that there's a core of the audience who really loved the thing and they were just along for the ride with whatever he was doing and they they felt rewarded for paying attention. Yeah. If you listened to the loudest people complaining in your comment section, if Patrick had listened to the people who were complaining the most loudly in his comment section, he never would have made the movie. Oh my God. Yes. He never would have made his first feature film. The next thing we're doing is, is a smaller project, but with potentially a fairly big name producer attached. Oh my God. Like another movie? Yeah. Another narrative cool. thing. And then we've got another thing planned after that. And we're like, we're taking steps to build out his career as a filmmaker. You know, there's no guarantees in life. We'll see where it goes. And Nebula may do other feature films with other creators now. Like it also showed that there's an opportunity there, right? Yeah, everybody gained so much from this, both spiritually and experientially and monetarily. Everybody came out ahead. Totally. But if he had listened to those complainers, he never would have done it. Totally. And we'd all be poorer for it. But because he listened to what he wanted to do and what his most passionate, engaged audience, if you've got like half your audience yelling at you that you're dumb and the other half saying, oh my God, I love this, you're probably on the right path. If everyone agrees with you, be nervous because that means that there's something you're missing. Well, we've talked about this, right? It's like if people like you, they probably don't love you. Like you have to be a little bit polarizing in life. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to say that. Yeah, yeah. I subscribe to that. And it doesn't have to be like polarizing, like saying like politically incorrect stuff. It literally could just be like saying like who your favorite artist is. Some people are not going to like that artist. Like, for example, I love Taylor Swift. If someone else loves Taylor Swift and like really interests her music, like I'm going to immediately like them because we have this shared thing. And then someone else may like really not take her music or whatever. And then I probably will like them a little bit less, but like it's divisive in a way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's like Colin Samir say like in order to find your tribe, like you need to define who you're not. And I do think to a certain extent that is true. I think that's uh, that might have been lifted from the book that Devin's always quoting, Primal Branding. This episode is not sponsored by that book. <laughs> that would be a kind of a seamless sponsor, but we'd lose all credibility. It goes back to our point. If only we we put an audiobook sponsor here. I'm actually, I, this is a slight diversion. I don't think I want to put sponsors on this show. I feel weird about it. because Given my job. Yeah, that makes sense. Because then I'm getting paid by the sponsor and that, I don't know. That just that makes sense. Which is, which is fair, but I don't know. It feels a little bit muddy to me. So I think that the sponsor on the show will always be me saying, you could listen to this show with no sponsor read and early if you signed up for Nebula, which, um, hey, look, I just did an ad read. I mean, then I'm just promoting a thing that the creators own. Yeah, it was seamless. Yeah, that's um, interesting, actually. Integrated content. I think that is so interesting to like think about when you're a creator, you have to be really open to feedback and like not 
let your ego get affected by negativity, but you also have to have like such a strong self-belief and conviction. Um, I heard this quote somewhere, I forget where it was from, but it was like, when someone tells you you have a problem, they're probably right. But when they tell you what the problem is, they're probably wrong. Hmm. And I thought it was really interesting. Like a lot of like, sometimes a commenter will be like, I didn't like this video because of X reason. Like maybe they'll be like, the sound design was annoying, but it's not really that. Like maybe the actual problem is that like sound design was there to overcompensate for the fact that there wasn't enough good story. Like you try to like really amp up the editing because there wasn't a story. Yeah. It feels a bit like the Henry Ford, if I listen to my customers, uh, they would have wanted faster horses thing, right? Totally, right? And so it's like, it's honestly like maintaining any relationship, right? Like your responsibility is to be present in the relationship, like know what you want from the relationship and then be open to feedback, but also constantly being in touch with yourself. Like, does this feel right to me? Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, honestly, I think creators, like you have to, if you're going to be successful and tell me if you think I'm wrong, because you obviously, we both are friends with a lot of like top 1% creators. I think self-conviction is really the thing and patience. I value sincerity over authenticity. What's the difference? Authenticity is pitching me a camera. Okay. Sincerity is using it to take pictures on vacation. Oh, I like that. I agree. If you as an expert actually use this thing and it's your favorite, that's sincerity. Then you mean it. Yeah. Authentic just means that it fits the, the silhouette of the kind of thing you would do. Literally, those words are synonymous. Yeah, but it feels different. Yeah, the creator economy, influencer culture has kind of, in my mind, created a division there. And I will take you really meant this over it fits your brand every time. I love that. Yeah. And you can tell that's the other thing. Like sometimes like creators will make a video because they think it's going to perform well, but their heart's not in it. Mm -hmm. You can just feel it as a viewer. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's just it feels like there's something missing when I think about like audience, like community relationships. It's like common values. I think the other thing is honestly just being likable. Like the creators that I watch the most, it's like because I want to be friends with them or because like I enjoy their company in a way. And I think the other thing like on that note is that sometimes I think people, what we were just talking about with like the liked versus loved, like they try to be like universally likable. So like they don't like have strong convictions. And I think sometimes that then makes it hard. Like, especially if you're a reviewer, you need to kind of say that you don't like certain things to build that audience trust. Like if you universally like everything, you're not a valuable opinion. I think that being uncontroversial is unflattering. Ooh, okay. I need to hear like, an extended take on this. Drama, and I mean lowercase d drama, not like, you know. You've done something terrible. Right, right, right. But like the way that like soft lighting might make you look attractive. Dramatic lighting makes you look more interesting. Mm. And that drama in a personality, not a person who seeks out drama or conflict. And I think mm -hmm. that it's easy to conflate drama and conflict, but the sort of person who's like, there's there's just enough of a, a rough edge, just enough, I don't know, personality and conviction, and they mean what they say, and they're not afraid to be wrong. And it feels human, right? Yeah, it feels human and it feels just interesting. I've known people, people I, I like, people I'd call a friend, who they just, everywhere they go, they just agree with everyone all day long. Oh my God. And it's so hard to be friends with them. Like you, you feel bad for them, but you also have no idea what they actually like, if they actually want to do the thing. It almost makes it hard to ask them to do anything because you feel like they're just going to say yes. And then you don't know if they actually want to do it. Yeah. The, you lose all sincerity. Yeah. Like here's this person who like, whatever you say, they just kind of go along with it. Yeah. And at a certain point you're like, do you actually like me? I will never know. Yeah. You'll never tell me if you're mad. You'll never tell me if you dislike it's me. You'll never worst. tell me if I pissed you off and I can't trust you now. You're like walking on eggshells, but in a really weird way, because it's not like they're mm -hmm. going yeah, to lash yeah. out at you, but like you actually like you have no barometer of like when you do a good thing <laughs> or a bad thing. Right. And it sucks. I'm doing all of the work in this 
Yeah. Because you are giving me no feedback. Because you're giving me nothing. And you think, and like, they think that they're doing the right thing, right? Like they think that they're being easy and agreeable. And like, to a certain extent they are. And there's probably like past trauma and why they're like this, but it makes it very, very difficult to like form a meaningful relationship. Same thing with the creator. Yeah. Right. It directly relates. Yeah. That, that like lukewarm tap water personality thing. Like if, if all you do ever is just agree with people and try to be uncontroversial and play it straight down the middle, then like, what are you really contributing? You're nothing. Like, who are you? Like, there's really no personality trait there. Like, I think that we talk about this a lot. If like, you're like a blank canvas, then the audience attachment goes to the platform or the product Mm -hmm. instead Mm -hmm. of you as a person. Yeah. um, No, no names in my assessment here, but there are creators who I think are very successful parasocial and some creators are aspirational. And I think that certain creators, they can hit really big numbers, really big view counts not because the audience thinks they have a relationship with that person, but because the audience can cast themselves into the role of that person. Interesting. They watch this creator and they imagine themselves doing it. As if they were the person? Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Jimmy's a little bit like that. I think you when you watch both. a Mr. Beast video, yeah, he, he walks a line. But I think that for the kids who really love Mr. Beast, and his audience is a little bit younger, uh, those kids, they they look at him not as like, that's my friend, Mr. Beast, but like, I would love to be him. Yes. So true. Yeah. They, and this is why you've got an entire cottage industry of creators who are, are uh, people building tools or or designing structures so that you can be more like Mr. Beast. There's uh, a whole slew, an onslaught of creators who are desperately trying to do what he does. And it's so bad. Yeah. Without his budget and without like, without his humanity, honestly, like Mm -hmm. a lot of these like Mr. Beast videos to me, like, the videos that I think we're all kind of sick of on YouTube, like the hyper optimized, like mm. I did whatever challenge, like I was out at sea for 50 hours. And if it's like Mr. Beast cut, like if it's not Jimmy making it to me, it feels like hollow because I think that like the, instead of like actually analyzing why he does the things that he does and like figuring out like the heart of it emotionally, like it's not just fast editing. He's editing in a certain way for the impact of the story. They then lose why it's a good video and maybe they're going to get high retention and stuff, but like, High retention doesn't necessarily actually mean that you're a a good creator and b have a relationship with the audience. Yeah, and there's uh, you know who knows what Jimmy's relationship with the audience is. I think it's pretty strong actually. It's tough to say because his audience is younger. We know that if he opens a hamburger restaurant at a mall in New Jersey, fourteen thousand kids will show up. They break the records. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, the world record for most hamburgers sold in a day, like four x the record, I think. Yeah. When he sells candy bars, they 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 go like crazy. If he sells T-shirts or socks, people buy those. I think it's because he's so genuine and like has a bigger mission. But if he made something that didn't have his name on it, would it sell as well? Meaning what? If he opened a store in the mall called Beast Broccoli. Okay. I think people go. People would go. He's not, I mean, he might break a record for most broccoli sold in a day just because, you know, I, who knows what that record even looks like. Yeah. But he doesn't sell as much broccoli as he sells junk food. But I think that's also an unfair comparison because if people have the choice between junk food and broccoli without anyone's name on it, they're going to buy the junk food. Right. My point is that the product is what's selling. Oh, I don't know if I agree with that. I think it's both. If it's both, then the the number of broccoli patties should be equal to the number of burgers sold. Well, no, I don't think so. Because I think the thing that stays consistent is that both of the times they're buying it partially because of Jimmy. And then the other half of the equation is that they also like the product, right? Like product market fit is always going to be important, even if you're like the biggest creator in the world. Kids want junk food. Exactly. Right. 
Kids want to eat greasy fries and hamburgers. Kids want to eat chocolate bars. So the product market fit is like they love him and then they also want to eat the candy. But with the broccoli, maybe they would have had zero broccoli, but now because of him, they'll actually try it, but it won't be the same extent. But I just think that that's like not like I think product market fit is always going to be like really, really important, even if like a lot of the thing that's driving the sales is the relationship. I think relationship is part of it. And I think that the number of people who want to buy a greasy hamburger <laughs> is not equal to the number of people who want to buy broccoli. And there's Agreed. there's not enough Mr. Beast juice in the world to make people as excited about broccoli as they are about greasy hamburgers. No one could. That's not a deficiency on Jimmy's part. It's just the market, right? Like there are certain markets you can get into and not get into. This takes us all the way back to the beginning. Oh, I love it. Full circle moment. If you have your logo on something and nobody wants it, yeah, it's not going to do as well as a thing with your logo on it that people do want. Very true. I think that Beast Broccoli, Mr. Mm -hmm. Beast Broccoli versus an unbranded version of the the hamburger company. He could go out and say this is this is my burger restaurant and call it something else and do everything else exactly the same way but without his name on it. It yeah. would probably do really really well. I agree. It's smart to lean into the the brand recognition for sure. Of course. The winner in the equation is it's greasy junk food that children already want. Yes, it's the product market fit. Like as a creator you have to be smart and create something that people actually want. Like there's already demand for it. Like I think as a creator, it's not that you can just create anything in the world. You can like, and sell it. You can sell it to a certain audience that's so dedicated. But I think as a creator, it's really that mm -hmm. whatever market you pick, you supercharge it with the community. It's interesting in you, to use a very large and public example in the framework of a logical extreme. Totally. Because people will understand it, right? If we talked about like a niche creator that we both love, they would have no idea. So let's look, the Delta here. Jimmy sells hamburgers. Patrick sells coconuts. Mm -hmm. Why is it that on one scale, Jimmy sells a gazillion hamburgers in a day and breaks records? Yeah. And on the other end of the scale, a niche video essayist who talks about movies can sell out of plush coconuts that squeak when you squeeze them. But Jimmy could too. It's just different. No, no. It's not that it's one versus the other. It's that oh, okay. to, to the audience, both of these creators have made a thing. Oh, I got you. And the audience that they have has responded extremely well and the product has been successful. They both understand their community and what the community values, I think is really what it comes down to, right? I think that's a huge part of it. I think that the other component is the thing is actually good and gets people excited. Yes. So part of it is like, the, yes, people want to eat hamburgers and he happened to make hamburgers. Therefore, those hamburgers were sell. But there's also the him of it. Agreed. People are more excited about his hamburgers than somebody else's hamburgers because he is uh, the world's most popular game show host and children love him and young adults love him. And yeah. that's great. With Patrick, he knew what he knew who his audience was. They are movie nerds that obsess over uh, the esoterica of filmmaking. And it's an audience made up of people who sort of revel in their own fandom. Yes. People who will buy tchotchkes from their favorite anime or video game or Marvel movie to have around their home. Oh, that's so interesting. And now they're buying it from like a friend or like a community that they're part of. Right. This is another thing that they get to be a fan of. That's Him selling cool. Patrick Willems shirts with his face on it. And I don't think those sell well. Yeah, no. That's interesting. Whereas musicians sell that at their concerts, right? 
Right, because they are the product. But just thinking it through now, I wonder if there's a product that musicians could sell that would be more effective. Guitar picks? I don't know. Maybe because then not everyone's a musician. Like that was my first thought. I say guitar picks. Um, have, having spent years as a musician, we had, uh, and I have some sitting here on my desk, airplane mode guitar picks. Got our logo on there and little AM thing. And did it sell? Or like, did people love them? We never sold them. But what we would do is whenever we'd play a show, like I would, you know, every other song or something, I would just toss a guitar pick into the audience. Love it. And it doesn't matter if only two people came out to see you. And I've certainly played shows like that. Okay. I played I played shows to hundreds. <laughs> I played shows to two people. No joke. If there are two people in the audience and you toss out three guitar picks, all three of them get picked up. Yeah. Because it's not just about your logo. It's not because they play guitar. It's because it's a little souvenir of this moment of this experience. That's true too. That's probably why concert tees sell so well in person and like worse online. Mm, mm, yeah. Yeah. That could be a big thing. I guess if I have a thesis here, going back to the the Patrick of it and the Jimmy of it, yeah, the kind of fan that is going to go and buy a bunch of hamburgers and the kind of fan who is going to buy a plush coconut with googly eyes, it's because the product that was made for them was made for them. Yes. Probably more fit. It's because it, it serves a purpose. It doesn't just exist for the sake of existing. The plush Charles is because the audience is like, it's not a logo. Mm -hmm. It's a character. Yeah. They're they're buying this avatar of a character. I think the enamel pin did well for the same reason. And for Jimmy, it's the they want to eat a hamburger. And it's a hamburger made by this guy who does these who great videos. Love. And they think of him as like, he's got this independent creator spirit and YouTube is still the Wild West. And he's got, you know. They love what he represents, I think. Yeah. Yeah, with real engineering, with the notebook, it's a useful product. So I think that I guess this whole episode has been about how you think about your audience and how you design products or how you you contemplate uh, merchandise and products that you would sell to them. And how you maintain the community. I think like all of it's so related. Right. You You have to think, I guess, about your relationship with the audience, what the audience would actually want, like demographically, what does this group of people spend their money on? How can you sell them something that both represents and furthers a relationship. Yeah. And plays into the value that they get from the relationship. Right. You can't just sell them a logo. You have to fill it up with meaning. I agree. Oh my God. I love that. All right. That's the best thing ever. That's like the perfect encapsulation of everything we said, because I think, yeah, it's like, what value are you giving this audience? And then how do you expand that value with a product um, or even like a video, right? Like every video should be expanding on that relationship, deepening the relationship delivering on that and it could be delivering on it in like a new novel way but at the end of the day i think like the audience comes to you to feel a certain way to learn a certain thing and like you can widen that as you go but at the end of the day like you can you have to give them that in a bunch of different ways that feel new and novel like it's like familiarity wrapped in novelty i think it's really like your job as a creator that's really good i think about it a lot honestly like i think the reason why you and i relate so much is because we both First of all, I think we both actually really care a lot about being a good person, which I hope most people care about, but it feels like you and I... <laughs> I think most people care about that. I think most people do, but I think like you and I like consciously think about it in like everything we do. And I think like sometimes it's really easy, like when money's involved or like fame is involved, right? To like get sidetracked. Do you think you're naturally a good person? I hope so. Do you think that's like uh, just a thing that's baked into you or do you have to put effort into it? I don't know. I think it's naturally baked into me. And then I also think it's the way I was like raised. Like I had really good role models and I think I was complimented a lot for those things. And so I feel like whatever you're praised for as a kid becomes like kind of like, I don't know, perform in the world. Hmm. But I also think like if you, I don't know, do you think you're naturally a good person? No. Really? No, I feel like I'm a sociopath from another planet who's learning to behave like a person. 
I can't tell if you're being serious or not. Um, uh, mostly serious. I'd say eighty-five percent wow, okay. serious. Well, no, it's it's that I know the things that happen inside my head. I know as I'm looking at any given situation, the way I can play out scenarios. And I'm okay. not saying that like I want to go around uh, stabbing strangers or something. <laughs> so, so, certainly not. Like there's there's no evil in there. But it's just like I think that 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 people are at a base level from the very beginning, from from birth, like we're inherently selfish. And a lot of my life has been me learning the benefits, the values of being less selfish mm. because selfishly, they make my life better. <laughs> when True. I'm less selfish, it's better for me. So yeah. the best thing I can do if I'm selfish is to not be selfish. There's a fun paradox. Yeah. And I think also it's like we judge other people based on their actions, but we judge ourselves based on our thoughts. True. So it's really easy to think that like other people like don't experience things things that like you experience, but yeah, I don't know. I think generally like I get a lot of like meaning and happiness and like value from like being a good person and making people happy. I think this is like why I love networking so much. Oh, me too. Me too. Okay. All I'm saying, I want to be a good person. I, I actively work at it because I know that in a vacuum, I can be a selfish jackass. So I build structures and I try, I actively try to be a better person. If I let my guard down, I don't know, I'm not going for a soundbite there. I'm not saying I'm evil and I'm pretending to not- Easily be can be taken out of context. Yeah. Yeah. The the truth, the, the real truth there is that I think that people tend to act in their own self-interest when there are no other factors at play. And I recognize I'm an only child. I spent a lot of my time as a kid alone, moved around a lot. And so I had a lot of time, put a lot of time with myself where my primary concern has been myself. And as an adult, I have, you know, I, I run a company and I have employees and I represent creators. I have a, a, lot, a lot of people in my life who depend on me. Yeah. And depend on your selflessness, right? Well. To a certain extent. To a certain extent. I think that I place so much value on those people and their well-being and the the things that I get out of those relationships yeah. that I know that if I want certain things to happen or if I want to be effective for the people around me, I need to take my ego out of it a little bit. That makes sense. And uh, again, paradoxically, it makes me look better to distance myself from my ego. Very true. Very true. Which is good. I'm glad that that paradox exists. It's better for my ego to not be egotistical. That's a good thing. It's great. Yeah, I, I'm glad that paradox exists because if it was the opposite, if it was like not caring about your ego, like was a net negative, I think it'd be a lot harder for people to do it. Mm. But you actually gain. A lot of people do, I think, think that that's the case. But for me, at least, it's the way I value my role in the world is less about here's what I get out of it. Mm -hmm. Again, it goes back to like, is your objective, do you exist to add value or to extract value? Yes. I find personally that I extract the most value out of adding value. Yeah. That is- Me too. I, I don't know if that will universally be possible for everyone in every situation, but for me at least, I get more out of giving. I love like literally just like talking to a cashier and being like, yeah, like have a great day. No one does it. And it literally makes their day. It's like, why aren't people doing these simple things that make other people happy? And I think like you actually mm. feel happier by doing that. Like there's, um, there's a book called The Happiness Advantage, which I've actually never read, but the spark notes on it is like <laughs> one of the things that makes us <laughs> just like promoting, but, but the spark notes on it is that one of the things that makes us really happy is doing things for other people. Like we really get fulfillment from that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think about it a lot. I think also the other thing I think about is a grocery store example, which is like, there are no laws that you have to put the cart back. And so like, do you put the cart back or do you not? I think Ashley says a lot about you as a person because 
it like makes it easier for the next person. But like there's no real consequence if you don't do it. I get angry when I feel like other people aren't following rules that benefit everyone. Me too. Immediate. It does not affect my life in any way mm -hmm. if somebody jumps the turnstile on the subway. Mm -hmm. But it still bothers you. But when I see it, it makes me viscerally angry. Yeah, I get that. Because like if I did that, I'd get in trouble. But that person does it and it's okay. Yeah. Like why is why is this person exempted from these rules? Yeah, and why why do they feel justified? Like to do that. I don't know if that's an altruism thing. Maybe maybe that is me being selfish. Like why how come I have to follow the rules? <laughs> I want to jump the turnstile. Save 275. Yeah. If we don't get to this fact, I don't think this episode will ever end. Okay. So let's do it. In the end, in the end, conclusion. Jacqueline, conclusion is, yes. I don't know if you need more coffee. I think I do. 